NVIDIA just reported earnings and their stock jumped over 25% in a single day. Are they the AI rocket ship that you should be investing in? On today's episode of the Build and Best Live podcast, I'm going to walk you through the highlights of NVIDIA's earnings call, as well as my thoughts on what it means for retail investors. Plus, we're going to talk about the Ledger hardware wallet controversy and if your crypto is safe. And we're going to do a six-month update on the dividend growth portfolio that I created at the end of last year. And spoiler alert, so far, not so good. But let's get into it. NVIDIA. NVIDIA. NVIDIA's new entry into the trillion dollar valuation club. So talking about the latest stock that seems like it will never, ever go down again, NVIDIA. So NVIDIA reported earnings and their stock price jumped from $300 to about $400 in a single day. They actually beat Apple's previous record for, I think, value added in a single day, which is unbelievable. So why did it happen? Well, number one, they had a good quarter. Right, So revenues were up, let's see, 19% for the quarter, quarter over quarter, which is good. And data center revenues were up almost 15%, which we'll get into why that's important here in a minute. So obviously, NVIDIA is an extremely important company as it relates to AI. And AI is that market buzzword that everybody wants to be attached to nowadays. And there's no question that they have a competitive advantage and extreme positive market positioning in that area. And when you listen to the earnings call, their future guidance is what really knocked it out of the park. They projected over $1 trillion of data center infrastructure was going to start to migrate over to their accelerated computing platform. But NVIDIA's guidance was so far and above what anyone expected that it just rocketed the stock up. So we should all be all in, right? Let's talk about some numbers that I haven't heard many people bring up. So number one, yes, revenues quarter over quarter up 19% is great, but they're actually down 13% year over year. And even though the data center revenues are increasing, the gaming revenues decrease 38% year over year. That's a significant downtrend. Now, I know that their future, I think, is more data center AI based. However, those are just projections. They haven't happened yet. And when you look at where NVIDIA is at right now from a valuation metric perspective, their price of sales right now is at 37. Now, what that means in layman's terms, right, is that they would have to give you 37 years of revenues without expenses, right, just revenues, in order to meet their current valuation. 37 years. That's not sustainable. And even when you look at their projected price of sales, it's at 22. And when you looked at NVIDIA over the past few years, in 2021, when the stock market was in a tech boom, they were at 21, 22. So what we're saying is that they're at 37 now. And when they get to their projected sales and revenues, they're going to be at 22. That's still pretty high. So the challenge is that even though they project this $1 trillion of you know, global data center migration, they're just projections. And a lot of things can change. A lot of things can impact that, that they may never hit that, but the market's already pricing in that they're going to hit that today. So for me personally, NVIDIA, even though I think they're a good company, even though I think they're going to be extremely important going forward, they're at a price level that's just a little bit too rich for me. I would at least wait for a pullback in the market, and then maybe reevaluate where they are from a valuation perspective. But I'm guessing that they're not going to be at healthy kind of valuations for a while, just because the AI hype train is going, and they're you know right in the middle of that. Um, especially when you think about who they are, right? Like, why are they so important to AI? Well, the analogy that everyone's using is when you think about the 1800s gold rush, it wasn't the people mining for gold that actually got rich. It was the people who sold the pickaxes and the shovels. 
Well, that's what NVIDIA is for AI. They're selling the chips and the infrastructure and the hardware um, for other companies to be able to get into the AI game. And so they will definitely make money. Regardless of what AI becomes or doesn't become, NVIDIA will make money. The question is, how much money are they going to make and how quickly um, and what time frame they're going to make it in? And so for me personally, even though I like NVIDIA, I'm not an investor at this stage right now just because it's way too high a valuation. Um, you know, all those valuation metrics are so far over their skis based on their guidance and projection. And we'll just have to see what happens now. That may mean that I miss out on NVIDIA, right? And that's okay. I think at the end of the day, we all have to have our own methods that we're comfortable with to help keep us out of these crazy kind of situations where we FOMO and then lose money. Um, that's happened to me before. I'm sure it's happened to you before where you, I think I bought Tesla at the top and it died. Um, I think I bought Square at the top and it died. And part of that was my own ignorance. But part of it was exactly this, is that it had run up a lot. I believed in the company, but I didn't necessarily look and believe in the valuation metrics. And that's what I'm doing differently nowadays. So, you know, NVIDIA, here's the reality, right? I looked at NVIDIA in January. We've all known that NVIDIA has been an extremely important AI company for a while. I looked at them in January, and I thought that they were overpriced in January, so I didn't invest. And they've tripled since then. So <laughs> it's not a perfect science, right? We, we look at these things, we do the best we can, and we try to make decisions based on our, our own beliefs and values and the type of investor we want to be. And you're going to miss some. So um, that's kind of where NVIDIA is at. For me personally, I'm not going to be investing, but I am going to be watching. And we'll see if there's a pullback here or, you know, if this is really the bottom that it never hits again. Uh, I doubt it. I, you know, again, nothing ever goes up and down in a straight line. Um, but if you're interested in NVIDIA, uh, you know, I would probably wait till the valuation metrics look more reasonable, especially since it's mostly just based on future guidance and projection at this point. All right, so let's talk a little bit about crypto. If you've ever bought crypto and you've ever stored it in a hardware wallet, there's a good chance that you probably know who Ledger is, or you probably bought a Ledger because I think it's the most popular hardware wallet in the world. So Ledger made some waves over the past couple of weeks with a new feature that they were going to roll out called Ledger Recover. And the idea behind it was that they were going to offer a service where they basically split your seed phrase into three encrypted shards. Shard is just like a piece of data. They would split it into three encrypted shards. They would be stored in three different places. So basically one would be with Ledger, and I think the other two would be with custodians that they're partnering with. The idea being, if you ever lost your seed phrase, you ever lost your device, you could reach out to Ledger and get an encrypted seed phrase back from them so that you wouldn't lose your crypto. Sounds great, right? Well, the problem with this and the reason why it caused so much controversy is because the whole point of a hardware wallet was to keep your seed phrase and private keys offline and that you had to have the physical device in order to be able to access your crypto. But the problem with this feature is that basically means that that's not true anymore. Now, they were going to make it optional and opt in, and that's fine. But if you've ever developed software before, you know that if you create a feature that's optional or opt in, it still means that the ability to do it is in the code base. So you can have a bug, you can get hacked, whatever. The ability to do it is there. So it opens up a vulnerability that maybe didn't exist before. So this caused a bunch of concern online. Crypto Twitter is known to be, you know, very balanced and not overreact at all. I'm kidding, that's sarcasm. And 
what made it worse, at least for me, is that the Ledger CEO came out and he was on the What Bitcoin Did podcast. And he basically said, well, yes, the government can also subpoena us and access those encrypted shards, right? That's concerning, number one, because it means that the encryption key is not held on your device. It's actually held with Ledger or they have access to it. And so that was one of the big questions for me, because if the encryption key was still going to only be on my device and the encrypted shards are just going to be out in the cloud somewhere, but nobody could decrypt them, then it's not great, but it's maybe workable. But when he basically admitted that, yes, a government can subpoena them and then they can provide them your seed phrase, that to me is really bad. And it kind of, you know, even made it worse because he kind of tried to minimize it by saying, well, that's only in cases where something really bad happens, murder, drugs. That's a very naive view, in my opinion. The whole reason that Bitcoin exists is to be money outside of governments and banks or central banks. So at some point, it's going to be something, if it ever reaches the level of importance that people think it will, then it's going to be a target of governments, right? It's already been a target of some governments in the world, not all of them. And if it ever becomes a target of like the U.S. government, then of course they're going to use that power to subpoena and be able to, to get at people who hold crypto or hold Bitcoin. So I think that's an extremely naive view. Now, I don't want to completely bash on Ledger because I understand why they might have thought this was a good idea at first. So if you look at it from their perspective, they're a company that probably gets so many questions and requests of people who misplace their seed phrase, right? I lost my seed phrase. I lost my device. Can you help me get my crypto back? I'm sure they get hundreds of those, maybe a day, right? So in their mind, they're probably thinking, hey, people need this clearly. We know because we see the, the requests and the questions for help. And this is a service that we can provide and maybe charge for. Right, So add some revenue, we'll partner with people, we'll encrypt it all so that it's relatively safe, and we're going to help probably who their core customer is. I would imagine that most of their customers are probably not OGs or people who really understand what a hardware wallet's for, right? So from a business perspective, from a, a company strategy perspective, you can see why they might have thought that was a good idea. The, the problem with that approach is that it really negates the whole reason for their product in the first place. Like you've now introduced so much trust into this process where the whole point of that hardware wallet initially was to reduce the amount of trust that you needed in a custodian. But if you have a hardware wallet and the government can subpoena them to get your seed phrase whenever they want and move your crypto, what is the point of the hardware wallet? It's pretty crazy. And this is what I think a bigger issue is when it comes to Bitcoin and when it comes to crypto. And I know I've been a believer in this space for a very long time. My views over time, like anyone, you know, change and, and evolve and, you know, morph. And I've seen the ultra religious kind of crypto view of we're going to change the world. We're going to eliminate all governments and central banks and all this nonsense it's not that I don't believe that those are good ideas. It's it's not that I believe that, you know, a central bank is good or governments are good. But all I have to do is look at this type of issue to see one of the biggest hurdles in mass adoption of Bitcoin or mass adoption of crypto. In order for Bitcoin to provide the utility that it was made 
to provide, which is money outside of governments and banks. You have to be able to self-custody, right? And in reality, you really should be running your own node. And But I'm not even going to get into that. That's a, a layer above even what I'm talking about. But if you can't self-custody your own Bitcoin, you're not really getting the benefit of it. Like you may get investment gains as long as all the governments allow you to invest in it and to buy and sell it, right? Which we don't know if that's going to change. But they're already making it difficult. So if you've ever tried to do taxes related to Bitcoin or crypto, you know it's terrible. In the U.S. anyway, they, they treat it as property. So every transaction that you make is basically a taxable event. It's a nightmare. And they're adding KYC or even more KYC into the exchanges. At least that's what we're hearing. It was already bad enough. So basically anything that you did was going to be KYC. I think in the future, what they're pushing for is any external wallet that you send to also needs to have KYC, which, you know, number one is nonsensical. It makes no sense. But they want more control over it, right? This is the whole point. So the challenge, I think, for Bitcoin and crypto in the future is if the majority of people, let's say retail investors, are not willing or able to self-custody themselves, then it kind of negates the possibilities of this, right? Because a government ban or government overreach can easily knock them out of the market or at least make it so difficult for them that they don't want to deal with it anymore. And that, I think, is one of the biggest challenges to this, is that even though what Bitcoin can provide is amazing, the amount of people who would be willing to actually use it in that way, I think, is relatively small. And so the question will be, is it going to maintain more of a niche status because the majority of people just aren't willing to take that much risk of self-custodying their own net worth, their own assets? And to me, this issue with Ledger kind of highlights that. The whole reason they created this feature is because people asked for it or people needed it. So if that's how people are when it comes to crypto, it means that it's only going to be as good and as important as governments allow it to be, which is almost antithetical to why Bitcoin was created. So anyway, I know it sounds like I'm a Bitcoin bear. I'm not. I love Bitcoin. It's actually an amazing piece of technology that has the utility that it claimed it wanted to have. It's just that you have to be a relatively technical user in order to actually realize that, at least today. Maybe that'll change over time, um, but I think we're a lot farther away from that than people realize. If you go online, you go on Bitcoin Twitter, it's you know a bunch of people saying all this religious stuff about you know how Bitcoin's going to take over the world and it's inevitable and, and all this nonsense. That's religion. That's not investing, right? And I'm not here for the religion. So... At least for me, it's one of those things where, yes, I think everyone should own some Bitcoin because you never know what's going to happen with any government in this world. But especially if you're in the U.S., I think we can all agree it's a little bit more volatile from a political perspective than maybe it's ever been in our lifetimes. So it's good to have some insurance. And what Bitcoin is to me is insurance of if you need money that's outside of the system for any reason at one point in time, you have it. Um, but again, you have to know how to use it outside of the system. Um, and I think that's where the challenge is going to be. So tying this back to the ledger issue, you know, is your crypto safe? I think the short answer is it is for now because I think they actually stopped the rollout of this feature. They're going to open source their stuff so everybody can check it and just try to build some confidence back. And 
you know, at least for me, I've promoted Ledger in the past because I think for newbies who want to hold more than Bitcoin, um, I thought it was the best option. I, I used it myself for years. Um, you know, now I don't know that I'm going to be promoting it. I think this is a dangerous update. I do think that it negates the whole reason for having a ledger, um, the whole reason for having a hardware wallet. But we'll see what happens. We'll, we'll, you know, I would say it's not something you should overreact to. I would just kind of watch it. Once that is released, then I think you have to make a decision on if you feel comfortable, especially if you have a significant amount of crypto on your ledger, um, if you feel comfortable having it there. Now, if you're Bitcoin only and you only hold Bitcoin, then I strongly recommend Cold Card. That's actually my favorite hardware wallet. Um, but again, it's a little bit more technical to use, right? Which is right back to the conversation that we just had. But, you know, I think it's just wait and see for Ledger. Let's see how this kind of plays out. I would definitely start looking at alternatives, though, if you have any significant amount of assets on your Ledger. And if you're just not comfortable with the idea that there may be an ability for the seed phrase to be remotely accessed um, in the future. So that's kind of my take on it. All right, lastly, let's talk about my dividend portfolio that I created at the end of last year. The idea with this portfolio is that I was gonna build a portfolio of dividend growth companies that were high quality companies that have consistently paid and increased their dividend over time and the idea was I wanted to build passive income, obviously, that continues to grow and beats inflation, but then also have a total return that beats the market. So, you know, pretty simple parameters. <laughs> I'm kidding. That's, that's tough to do. So if we look at this portfolio, it consists of these companies right now. American Express, Waste Management, Lowe's, McDonald's, Berkshire, which I only have two shares of Berkshire, and they're literally there just so I can go to the shareholder meeting if I want. Valero, which I recently added. And then SCHD, which is the Schwab Dividend Equity ETF. And if I look at the performance, it has gained 0.37% <laughs> basically since, you know, December 2022, or, you know, basically year to date. And when you look at what the S&P 500 has done in that time, it's, you know, up almost 10% year to date. So clearly I have underperformed the market up to this point. And when you look at the performers, the top performers in the S&P so far this year, it's all the big tech companies, right? It's Apple, it's Google, it's Amazon, it's now NVIDIA, right? Meta. And so it's not surprising that I didn't get the same performance, right? Because those companies are really pushing the S&P because they're, you know, really at the top of that um, S&P weighting because they're the biggest companies in the world. So my portfolio clearly is not big tech. It's these, you know, more slow growing dividend payers. And so I'm definitely not going to see that same performance, at least yet. Now, what do I feel about that? Well, number one, I'm not going to overreact to it. We're only six months in. This is a long-term experiment that I'm doing. So if we get to, you know, five years down the road and I'm woefully underperforming the market and these companies are performing terribly, then yes, of course, I'm going to reassess my position. But as of right now, you know, I believe in these companies. They're companies that are good companies, number one. They've consistently paid and increased their dividends. They've consistently beat the market. And 
I think they can do it again. And if you're really going to be an investor in individual stocks, you have to realize that sometimes the market's going to ebb and flow in a way that you don't expect or that you don't even agree with. But that's where the conviction comes in, right? And if that's not something that you want to do, that's something that's uncomfortable for you, that's okay. That's why those index funds are great. Like we still invest in index funds. Like my wife's retirement account is basically all S&P 500 index. That's what my account was when I started. Um, so they definitely work and they're great to get the average market return, which is better than a lot of people are going to get. But for me, I'm excited about this. I think that these are companies that um, are going to perform over time, and we'll just see how it goes. And for me, it also helps because it adds a little bit of pride in my investing so that anytime that I go to Lowe's, I'm like, hey, I'm helping my investment. Or anytime that I take my daughter to McDonald's for breakfast, hey, supporting my portfolio company. It sounds stupid, right? But it's those little things that I think help. And especially if you're relatively new to investing or you're trying to understand you know, how to get excited about it, to me, that's an easy way to get excited about it. It's, hey, I know that company. I like their products. I use their products. So I'm going to invest in them. Anyway, we'll see how it progresses over time. I'm going to keep you guys updated. Maybe we'll do it every six months or just anytime some kind of news of note happens with the portfolio companies. But other than that, Again, so far not so great, but we're just getting started. Thanks for tuning in to today's episode of the Build, Invest, Live podcast. Hope you guys have a great day out there. Financial independence is true freedom, so keep building and stacking those wins, and I'll see you guys in the next one. Peace. Peace.